are still in the first part of the book, 1 Samuel. You might want to make your way over, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, to, uh, to 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 8, 1 Samuel 8. We're jumping forward in the, in the story as we turn the page here. Uh, maybe 20 or 30 years after the events of chapter 7, you may recall that in Samuel led the people, the nation as a whole, uh, in repentance. The ark, you may remember, was stuck at the, uh, the house of Abinadab on the hill at Kiriath-Jerim. And, and um, Israel lamented after the Lord. And so Samuel, like, like, the old, like an Old Testament version of, of John, the bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Specifically, he told them to cast off their idolatry and worship the Lord alone. And they did. The people repented. And that's where we left our forefathers last time. Uh, repentant in a state of relative peace with their neighbors and with the Lord. And there was a dramatic contrast, you may remember, between uh, you know, Israel trusting in their own wisdom, relying on the fact that, you know, they had this relationship with God, so they will bring the ark in, you know, and they tried to manipulate God himself. And, and when they did that, the ark was taken, Shiloh was destroyed, uh, and the priests died. Fast forward, they repent, the Philistines attack, and the Lord delivers them by a mighty hand. That was chapter 7. Trust the Lord, serve Him only, and He will be for you a mighty fortress, a strong tower, a refuge. But as we turn to chapter 8, things take a turn for the worse. It's, it's going to sound a little familiar. Let's pick up the, verse, the story in verse 1 of chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel's boys didn't share the character of their father. He named the first Joel and the second Abijah. Yahweh is God and Yahweh is my father. And listen, Samuel is one of those rare characters in the scriptures who, who's 
Feet of clay just don't show. So I'm sure Samuel was a good dad. You can't look at the fact that his kids strayed and stand in judgment on him. It is the Lord who opens our heart. You know, we just baptized River because we believe God's promises. He's placed his name on us in our baptism. That's no guarantee that we will turn to him. It's a guarantee that the promise is offered. It does set us apart, though, as holy. It puts us in a community where the Lord is known and is loved and is trusted. It puts us in contact with the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. That is, God is faithful to hold out his promise to us that if we will repent of our sins and turn to him in faith, he will deliver us and give us eternal life. Well, Joel and Abijah, they had the word of God. In fact, they were appointed to minister the word of God. But that's actually part of the problem, really. God raised up judges. They weren't hereditary positions. A few of them tried to continue their office through their sons, but it it never went well. Now, in verse 4, the elders... They begin well. They bring the complaint to Samuel, and that's the right place to go. Um, But notice what they do and what they do not do. They go to the prophet. Samuel was well-established as a prophet. The Lord was letting none of his words fall to the ground, and everybody knew that he was a prophet. So they go to the prophet, but they don't ask what God would have them do. They go to the prophet, all right, but, but not to find out the course of act, a course of action from God. They, they go to the prophet to tell him what they want. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, we're going to see a contrast between the elder's approach and Samuel's approach. Samuel asks God what to do. The elders didn't. Samuel does. Uh, They see a problem. They devise a solution. And they won't budge on that solution. Now, in verse 6, we find out that Samuel's not at all happy about this request. Why? Why wasn't Samuel happy about it? Well, verse 7 suggests that he sees this as a vote of no confidence in his own leadership. I say that because he goes to God and God says, do it. You know, they haven't, don't, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And the implication is he probably thought they were rejecting him. So God says, give them what they want. Now, it's pretty clear that he's not giving them what they want because that's what's best for them in this instance. It's not. I mean, they are exchanging the direct rule and reign of God over them as a people Uh, which they have, they are exchanging that for the leadership of a mere man. And God says, they've always been like this, you know. From the day I delivered them out of Egypt, the people have constantly been drawn in wayward directions. They regularly lean on that which is not God, 
rather than resting in the promises and protection of their Lord. So give them a king, but be sure to warn them first. This isn't going to be all unicorns and roses. This is going to be bad. You're going to regret this decision. You might not feel it at first, but you will. Be sure that they have been sufficiently warned and then give them a king. Now, that's fascinating. Sometimes God will, uh, will give us what we ask for um, that we might learn to trust not in our own wisdom, but in his. Be careful what you ask for, the saying goes, right? You just might get it. But through this prophet, he warns them carefully about this course of action that they're about to take, verse 10. Now, before we look at that warning, I want you to consider the request a little more closely. It's not just that they want a king. It's what this king will do for them. They are looking for a hero. He's going to fight their battles for them. What they want, and you can see it in their request, is to be like the nations. Now think about that for a minute. What is Israel? They are a nation that God raised up out of one man, through which he would reconcile the world to himself. They were unique among all the nations of the world specifically because God was with them in a way that he was not with any other nation. Remember back in Exodus after the golden calf incident and how there was some uncertainty about whether God was going to go with them or not? And remember Moses' argument? He, says, he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and the rest of your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. That's the point of Israel. It's not to be like the nations. It's quite the contrary. Israel is a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, set apart. They're, they are not supposed to be like the nations. They're, they're supposed to be different from the nations. Now, Nevertheless, if they want to be like the nations, then they need to know what that's going to, what it's going to cost them. You know, having a human hero like the nations around them is not free. So Samuel, in verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and, your, and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands of commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, some to reap his harvest, some to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards, and he will give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain, your vineyards, and he will give it to his officers 
and to his servants. He will take your female servants and your male servants and the best of your strong men and your donkeys, and he will put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, there's a lot for us to think about here. Uh, first of all, these aren't sinful actions. This is what king is owed. This is what is rightly his due. You look to him to deliver you. You place him in authority over you. That's not free. How's he going to fight without weapons? How's he going to fight without soldiers? Everything he needs to do the work that you're tasking him with is going to come at your cost. You know, you drive to work on government roads, right? So you pay taxes. That's what the New Testament teaches us to do. It makes sense. Now, what doesn't make sense, especially now, I mean, I hope you recognize this is a repeat of Hophni and Phineas. Did you see that? That, that you know, just as Eli's sons didn't walk his, in his ways, Samuel's sons didn't walk in his ways. The prophet, the problem that they had identified is that the children sometimes don't follow in the footsteps of parents. And so they're going to install a monarchy that's hereditary. Another thing for us to consider is that they are exchanging the reign of God for the reign of a man. Gideon had warned them when they tried to make him and his sons king. He said, Judges 8, 23, the men of Gideon, Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Gideon. And Gideon said to them, I will not reign over you, and my son will not reign over you. The Lord will rule over you. That contrast between man and God is going to come up again in the book. When David, um, when David heirs, sins grievously by taking a census. The Lord, the prophet convicts him, and, and the Lord offers him three options, two of which put him at the mercy of men, one of which puts him at the mercy of God. And, and David knows that the Lord is merciful. The Lord is gracious. There is hope if we put ourselves in the Lord's hand. And you know, likewise, when, when the Son of God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus drew this contrast between what is in God and what is in man. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in the name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. I mean, they would have made, tried to make him king right away. Why? Because people are, were always more interested in having peace and prosperity now 
than in pursuing the holiness that God called them to and waiting for the vindication and the blessing of the Lord in his time. They want earthly, this age deliverance. We can sometimes be that way, can't we? Deliverance from men, deliverance from natural enemies. That is so short-sighted. For we do not wrestle, Paul tells us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, asking for a king... It was myopic, short-sighted, nearsighted. But, but it wasn't inherently sinful. That is, God was always planning for Israel to have a king. Um, the gospel that he is working history toward is that he would be our king. But he'd be a different sort of king. Not like kings of the nations where human kings take. You saw all that taking? Where human kings take, Christ gives. Human kings have take. Their taking isn't sinful. It's necessary for them to do their job. That doesn't mean it's not painful. Nobody likes paying taxes, but the king needs it. He also deserves it. He deserves the honor and opulent luxury because he is delivering them. But you know, our heavenly king is in the same position. He needs nothing from us. So he doesn't take, he gives out of his rich supply. You know, even the tenth that God demanded, that was, that was to maintain the tabernacle, which was among them. They benefited from that tent. But if they want a human king, he deserves a tenth too. God's not leaving them, so this is actually going to lead to a heavier tax burden for them. And in fact, you know, as, as a wimpy kid might have found out in middle school, if a bully wants your lunch money, there's not much you can do about it. He can kind of take it. Well, so it is with earthly kings. A human king to whom you owe your life and security, well, he can really take anything he wants from you. And what feels like coming relief for our forefathers here is going to feel like slavery soon enough. And when that day comes, God says, I'm not going to listen to your complaints. I don't want to take us too far afield here, but uh, this very thing happens right after Solomon. Rehoboam ascends to the throne. and You know, Solomon was building the temple. Taxes were really high, so the elders come and they say, lower our taxes. And, and he's like, absolutely not. I'm raising them. And the king's kingdom splits. But our king isn't a taker. He's a giver. You know, I've actually I've, I've focused on this taking, taking, taking that you see in, in what the king is going to do. But there's another theme in there too. He's going to take, he's going to take from you, and you're going to serve. 
But Jesus didn't come to be served like the kings of the earth. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He serves us. He gives to us. Yes, having been purchased by his blood, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. It's rational. What else, what, 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 what else should we do? We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. But slavery to the heavenly king isn't like slavery to man. He served us. He gives us life. He gives us a royal inheritance. So we serve him, but not out of a sense of slavery, even though we are slaves of righteousness now. We offer him everything because he's held nothing back from us. Okay, let's see the people's response, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice. Make them king. So Samuel said then to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Now, the people were foolish. It was a mistake to ask for a king here. And yet, this has been God's plan all along. Um, remember in his words to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into, an, into nations and Kings shall come from you. And Hannah's prayer, remember she attached that notion of, of Messiah to the promise. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. And, and Deuteronomy, Moses' final words to Israel before he died and they crossed over into the land. In Deuteronomy, God anticipates this very moment. He says in chapter 17, verse 14 and following, he says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So God will permit him to have a king. But that king has to be one of your number, um, not, not a foreigner. He's got to belong to the people of God. It's a believer. And that king must be chosen by God, not by man. And... That king must walk in the ways of the Lord. That, that's going to set up a contrast for us as we move forward. We'll see that in this king coming king. There's going to be a contrast drawn between Saul and David. But more importantly for us this morning, it reminds us, this whole thing reminds us that God is sovereign. He uses Israel's folly her myopic folly for the most blessed purposes. 
Yes, Israel will groan for relief under her king until the king comes for whom the throne is designed. This king will win the victory that matters. You know, Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to him because they would have surely tried to make him throw, you know, uh, king and overthrow the Romans, right? That's what, myopically, that's what the people of God always want. But this king is going to win the victory that matters, not, not over Rome, but the victory over the ruler, against the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, the fact that they ask for a king is sinful because of the reasons that, that are in their heart as they ask for a king. That's going to become abundantly clear as we hit chapter 12. But God turns what they meant for evil, he turns to their good. And that, brothers and sisters, is why our God is a strong fortress, a mighty deliverer. It's why we spend our whole life learning to lean on him rather than trusting our own wisdom, modeling our behavior after the world. We're supposed, friendship, the world is enmity toward him. We don't want to be like the world, or we shouldn't. That's why James calls us an, an adulterous people. We believers, believers who have turned away from sin and embraced Christ. We have not gotten rid of the old man yet. None of us has arrived. And so Paul said, James says to believers, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? You know, our hearts are veritable idol factories. We, uh, we adopt worldly priorities. We trust in human wisdom. We know better. And so let's redouble our efforts, brothers and sisters, to cast off the ways of the world. Stop looking to the things that, that worldlings find security in. You know, there's a refrain in the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did it as he saw fit. That's an interesting way of putting things. On the one hand, it looks forward to our day when, when our hearts are submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There is a king among us, and so we don't all do as we see fit. We do, or we strive to do, as he sees fit. The problem in the days of our passage is that Israel's heart is not submitted to God. God was their king, but he wasn't. I mean, he was, but they weren't submitting to him. They were their own king in their own minds. That's why they did as they saw fit. But, you know, God has shown us a better way. Come to the king who doesn't take from you, but rather gives far more than we could ever wish or imagine or ask for. Come to the king who serves you. You know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be sharing in the Lord's Supper where he serves us his body and his blood. All in the anticipation of that great day when he returns. 
Blessed are those servants, he says, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. Have them recline at table. That's us, brothers and sisters. And he will come and serve us. Won't you submit yourself wholly to the one who gave himself wholly for you? Cast off the idols of your heart. What are you looking to for security? How are you trying to be like the world? You know, all of us are in some way or another. Well, let's search it out in our own heart. Repent of it and spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we do confess that we are prone, just as our forefathers were here, to, to let anxiety reign in our hearts. We see the nations mustering and we panic rather than resting in your sovereign care. Father, you have proven yourself faithful over and over. When we see the forces around us and arrayed against us, let us not lean on our own wisdom, Lord, but or look to other things to deliver us. But, Father, we would lean on you. So forgive us for our adulterous hearts, our wayward minds. And by the blood of your Son, Lord, cleanse us. You have given us a better hope than that which the world has. Teach us to rest in that hope, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Your glory and for your good we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please stand. And